This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Gwen. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And welcome back to a brand new installment of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. If you don't <laughs> like the episode we're discussing today, it's Eric's fault because he picked it. Ha ha ha, teamwork. <laughs> right under the bus. That's going to be our theme for today's show. <laughs> Any final thoughts? <laughs> I'm coming for you, Christopher. I'm coming for you. <laughs> no, and I don't mean to say it like that because I actually didn't hate the episode that we're going to talk about today. Uh, let me do my disclaimer thing because I'm spectrum and I need to do that stuff to feel comfortable. Um, we On True Crime TV Club, you are not required to have watched the episode of True Crime Television we're going to discuss. However, if you would like to, I recommend that you stop the podcast, go to your television, your streaming device and do make a yourself a light snack. <laughs> make yourself a snack. Close the drapes. <laughs> Take your socks off if you've been wearing any. <laughs> um, the show we're going to talk about is called "The Case That Haunts Me." The episode title is "Murder Around the Campfire" because it's summer <laughs> and we want you to have nightmares on your vacations if you're actually it's taking summer any. Summer and we're running out of ice. <laughs> running. Season one, episode eight of "The Case That Haunts Me." That's what we're going to talk about today. Um, I am not going to pin it on Eric if you don't like it because we mutually come to these decisions and talk through them. We put a lot of thought into this podcast. We're a lot of thought. I, to be perfectly honest, I've uh, suggested the last, this one and the last one. So Wait, did you suggest the last one? Yeah, because we were actually considering doing a different one, which we decided to say for that you had suggested that we decided to say for later. It was a Father's Day thing. We forgot uh, to wish uh, we forgot to wish you happy Father's Day last time. So happy belated Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, fathers on True Crime TV Club. Terrible Even though fathers it's now of the true July. Crime world. Right. Oops. The things Oops. you forget. Now so we're the, on summer vacation with True True Crime TV Club goes on summer vacation. So the moral of the story is that Eric's not very good at teamwork because he's picking all the true crime TV club episodes and I don't oh, have a I'm voice. I'm a bossy bitch. Oh on my, God. my own fucking podcast. I'm just right. overpowered by the... Is such a hard life. It's, I believe a very hard life of privilege. It's brutal. Um, okay, so we're getting all the fun and the jokes out of the way because there's no fun or jokes on this episode of True Crime TV Club. Um, this is okay. I have to say right from the start, <laughs> you do take the lead. Go ahead. This is the highest tone recreations or whatever we're calling them. <laughs> Reenactments. Reencrapments. Um, that, um, of any, I mean, the casting, beyond. the acting beyond, this is almost like watching, a detective show that they made about this murder absolutely more than it is. I haven't watched anything else in this particular series. It's called, um, the, the one that haunts me or the, the crime case that, haunts, that me. haunts me. Yeah. And I, it was literally like name actors. Like uh, yeah. I, the guy who plays the lead, I couldn't tell you his name, but like I have seen him in. Oh, yes. But know? what? No, I, I went, look, his name Drove actually crops. I, the one that kept coming into my mind was um, was uh, Twilight, but that wasn't him. No, that was just because you were seeing him in the Pacific Northwest woods. May and have made been one of like the other fathers, yeah. but he's he's sort of the the Canadian Tom Skerritt. He's played everyone's father in everything you ever saw. But whatever I saw him in, someone breaks up with him, like for somebody else, and he cries, and I, it's really sad. And I think I think you know. it, he may have been in the Queer as Folk series. Anyway, anyway. He's, a, 
He's he and the other actors are creditable and they are a substantial part of telling the story. They literally do dramatic recreations of simple things. They don't try and do it's well it's well modulated. They There's don't try a helicopter. And do... They have a reenactment that involves a helicopter. I've never seen a reenactment at that level. Usually I mean, it's like that's shadowy what I mean. closets and a hand coming up with a hammer, you think. Right. Or people saying wearing bad wigs. No bad wigs on anybody. No wigs. It was literally the best reencraftments I have ever seen so far. And maybe no, no, ever in my history of watching these and certainly in the history of true crime TV club. Okay. But let me jump in with one thing though, because as, as someone who takes the obsessive compulsive notes on every episode, which you, you don't really need because you have a memory like a steel trap, but I get easily distracted by shiny things. Um, I usually don't trust the facts of the case to be relayed to me during a reenactment in one of these specials. Like they're usually filler, but I think in this one, they actually were having the reenactors, if you will, give you way more of the pivotal information about the case and the investigation than you're used to getting from them. Absolutely. They did crime room meetings that were worthy yeah. of any detective show I've seen on television. It was really, I was, I was seriously impressed. It was an interesting story. They did a nice job, but oh my God, the production value and just general um, level of presentation of this was head and shoulders. Hats off. To yeah. the 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 case that haunts me, I I, I will watch more from this series. I, I will too. Um, the case is not exactly Byzantine in its complexity. I will say that, but that's not the focus of this series. The series is, as we've said, the case that haunts me. So what they basically do? There's one I- real world interview, and it's with the detective. Right. So it's with um, in this case, our detective is Mike Eastham. He's a retired sergeant now retired for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So we get him in close shot taught. And and it's about the level to which this it's basically the most disturbing case he ever worked in his long career as a homicide investigator in British Columbia. And it's disturbing. I'll tell you that much. It is disturbing. So. uh, let me take you through some of it and jump in, Eric, if, if I'm missing anything. That's usually how we do this now. Um, it's what I live for. Jumping in, taking the lead. And when you're missing stuff, yes. Teamwork, absolutely. pointing out errors and yes. misstatements. As we already pointed out, I'm not a team player. I'm, I'm really just this, I'm that difficult bitch that does the podcast with you. That's actually the original name of our podcast was Difficult Bitches. Um, but Eric made us change it to that difficult bitch because he it wanted to be the most. Well. Yeah, it didn't yeah. test well. But we only tested it with bitches. Anyway, enough frivolity. Detective Mike Eastham, he's the star of our show, uh, literally and figuratively. I don't think that's the right use of either of those words. But Mike Eastham is our focus. Uh, he relates for us in an interview. And then we see acted out in very detailed, high quality reenactments, as we said previously. Uh, He's working as a homicide investor for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in 1982. A homicide investor? Oh, I said investor? I'm talking too fast because I've had too much caffeine and I've been home too long. (laughs) But I love the idea of being a homicide investor. (laughs) I invest in homicides. It sounds like like some horrible torture porn premise. Like you've invested in a murder. It's where the smart money it's where the smart money goes. Yeah, well, the smart money's in true crime right now. I'm not sure if that's the saying the same thing as it's in homicide. Um, Mike Easton is not a homicide investor. He's a homicide investigator. Yes. It is 1982. Um, part of the area that he works is predominantly rural. It looks to be, I believe, just north of Vancouver in British Columbia. And he's a Mountie. He's RCMP, right? Royal Canadian Mounted Police. This is going to betray my ignorance. I, I don't know a lot about the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Are they are they sort of like every... Do they cover all areas that don't have an urban police force? I guess they're like the Ranger, the Texas Rangers. They're a sort of more broadly based kind yeah. of force. Maybe they're equivalent to the FBI. I have no idea. All I know is when I'm calling you. Wait, wait what is that? What is that? That's Indian love call where um, <laughs> Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy sing to each other. She's a Canadian lady and he's a Royal Canadian Mounted Policeman. Or you could go with Dudley Do-Right. Um, yeah. He was... 
a Royal Canadian Mountie, um, but maybe this less flatteringly so. Clearly, but yes, I was like, he's a Mountie. It was like, oh my God, we're going to do a murder with a murder club with a Mountie. That's great. Yeah. RCMP. It was his yeah. childhood dream and he grew up to be a Mountie. And practically, it was, apparently this was one of his first cases. And he, so he gets a call that a very badly burned automobile has been found in an area called Wells Gray Park, which is outside the town of Kaloops. Uh, I don't. I am not pronouncing that correctly. I even looked Kaloops. it up on YouTube. Kaloops. It's spelled K A M L O O P S. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna say Kaloops, uh, so that I don't commit to a mispronunciation. But you just. It's like a placeholder for you listening. Uh, he gets a call. Badly burned automobile. Uh, he arrives at the scene. They uh, discover that one of the doors to the car has been left open, which is a suggestion that the fire was set deliberately. Yet another suggestion the fire was set deliberately because the person wanted oxygen to fuel the flames. There are Interesting bone- tip if you're planning to burn a car. Right. There are bone fragments inside the car, which they discover when they search it, possibly a rib bone. They find them in the back seat. It's evident that they're human. And a skull. Right. Um, They determined that the vehicle was driven off the road and into the bushes. They opened the trunk with a crowbar. And this is all happening in reenactments now. And it was taken. And not only was it driven off the road, but they drove it into like a, a, a remote service road area of the park. Right. Which to them suggested that maybe there was some local involvement because who would know that this was even a place Right. And it was very obscure so that the car would be well off the beaten path. Right. And uh, I think it was a logging road, right? Is that like that's their version of it? It was a, like that. Uh, yeah. Or maybe some fire service road or something, but it was not your tip it was not off just a main road or tip a road that just an ordinary tourist would have known this about. This is so heavily, suggested local involvement. Heavily, heavily wooded area. And there's no reason for anybody to be out in this specific area. Um, just joyriding. Yeah. So yeah. they open the trunk with a crowbar and they discover two small skeletons inside the trunk. Oh. There are two intact skulls. They're small, suggesting that they are from children. And I would suggest also that the missing thing had already started happening, right? It is, but yeah, they go back and I'm sort of going in the chronology of the episode. Okay. They, they get right. this car. They get this call. Two small skulls. One has a bullet exit wound above the eye socket. The reenactment takes us to the police station where they're um, contextualizing the discovery of this car as being registered to, I flipped past the page with their names, Bob and Jackie Johnson, who were reported missing several weeks prior by Bob's employer. Uh, Their last known whereabouts were that they said they were going to go on a camping trip with uh, their parents. Bob's parents or Jackie's parents? I think I missed that detail. It's not ultimately very important, but... Well, their last name was Bentley, so I'm guessing that they were her parents. But again, I'm not sure it was was clear. Right. Um, The point is, they have all been missing for several weeks. The discovery of this... All six of them. All six of them. The two two little girls whose names are... um, Karen and Janet, uh, Jackie and Bob, and then the grandparents, George and Edith. Now, George and Edith drive a a camper truck, which has also been missing for some time. So the priority for the investigation is to not only, they're unsure of who the remains belong to beyond the very logical assumption that the two small skulls discovered in the trunk actually do belong to the little girls, but there's not a lot of forensic evidence suggesting the whereabouts of if I turn this page one more time and don't remember their names, George and Edith Bentley, who are the owner, the grandparents. And What's going to happen if you turn I'm that page to, one more time? I'm going to be very upset with myself because I like to. It's important to name and honor the victims, but it's also important not to have constant page turning sounds on your podcast. I think that sounds like a really good rule of thumb. <laughs> I'm 
Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. So they get in touch with George and Edith's other son, who says his grandparents visit that region all the time, that they like to go camping there, and that when they go on their camping trips, uh, they prefer to use cash, and the grandfather keeps a hunting rifle. So, hearkening back to the I missed hole. the bit about another yeah. son. I didn't, I thought the whole family had, well, anyway. No, it goes by in a blink of an eye. Like, they don't really, I don't think he even And shows it never up in comes up again, because I did not, re- I thought it was odd that they didn't mention any other family. Yeah. Connected He's, to them. I thought that was strange. The boss reported the missing. I think there's a slight attempt here. And I don't I don't think they really commit to it very heavily to suggest that maybe there was some suspicion that the grandparents were behind the crime, you know, in the beginning, because anyway, the the point of those details ultimately is that it's very difficult for the cops to trace George and Edith's whereabouts, given that they like to use cash and they are very familiar with the woods around this area. They, they are. Local. And their vehicle is missing still. Yeah, right. Uh, because there's so little to go on, Mike Easton, our central detective, decides very early on, he's going to use the media to his advantage. Um, so he makes that declaration pretty early. He goes back to the scene. He meets with the forensics guy. This is the scene of the burned out car that's been discovered. They have not discovered any shell casings, which suggests that there was not a murder committed there. Uh, it suggests the bodies were dumped there along with the car. Uh, it's clear that some accelerant was used to for the fire, such as uh, gasoline. He says a skull fragment with a bullet inside was discovered, but it's not in great condition. Right. The bullet um, melted. It was so such a hot fire. He also says, and this is the big reveal, that it's clear that there were four more bodies than what they initially discovered in the car. So that the bone fragments that have been discovered have added up to four additional bodies to the two that were first plainly visible from the bone fragments they could see. So that suggests that George and Edith were, I mean, what a fire, man. Like, I, I remember I was researching a story, uh, the forensics of, of fires and how to get rid of a body. And I remember people scoffing at the idea of really being able to thoroughly erase somebody's complete identity with, with fire, that it has to burn so hot. But this fire burned really hot. I mean, for them to go this long and not even know how many bodies. And anyway. Um, yeah. I mean, this was like a cremation. Yeah. Uh, As a result of the media coverage, a park ranger calls in and says he saw a camper truck matching the description of George and Edis at a campsite uh, called Bear Creek, which is in relatively in the same area. This is a big area we're talking about of mostly wilderness. Uh, The cops are angry. Why didn't you call it in sooner? He says he was at a remote ranger station working. So he made the call as soon as he saw the report. Uh, They follow his directions to Bear Creek, and soon after their arrival, they find wooden blocks of the type that might have been used to level off the camper. If you don't know what we're talking about when we say camper truck, it's it's you have a pickup truck, and it's sort of, it's bigger than, I think, what they describe as a camper shell. It sits in the, it basically creates like a little house in the bed of your pickup truck, but itself, it does not connect really to the truck. It sits inside of it. Um Right, also, it's a self-contained little camper thing. It's very, contractors have them all the times because they can secure their gear in the back of the truck and store more stuff. But it came up over the cab of the truck and was it was yeah. really full size. It was a big camper. It kind of turned it almost into an RV, except there was no connection between the cab and the rest of the truck. So they find what they did not find at the scene of the burned out car, which is a shell casing. And they also find a bottle of beer that was George Bentley's favorite brand. brand so in this moment they're pretty convinced they've found the murder scene 
and their speculation is that someone tried to rob the campsite, perhaps while the family was on a hike. The family came back and interrupted them, and that's why they were killed. And ultimately, as they continue to search, they do find six shell casings, which I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you about later. Remember okay. for, for me to ask you about the six shell casings that are discovered in this moment. So they All decide right. this is most certainly the murder scene. So the the piece of evidence that they really can use to their effect in the media is a description of the uh, camper truck. So they blast it out as far and wide as they can. They are flooded with calls about sightings of the camper truck. Um, they A waitress claims she saw it. She says the drivers were two men dressed like loggers or tree planters. She comes in. She gives an interview. She says the men didn't speak much English. She thinks they're probably French-Canadian. She provides enough details for two composite sketches. But at this point, they're running into problems because they're only getting local news coverage in various nearby areas about the camper truck. And I, I am not exactly sure where the waitress came from, but I think it was not very far from where uh, the murder site was. So they say, okay, how can we, the sightings are in different places. The camper truck they believe is on the move. It's stolen. What can they do to get all of Canada's attention at once? This is 1982. There's no social media. They can invent the internet. They can invent the internet or maybe invent, was CNN even around? Canada has their own version, which I believe is CBN. I don't think it's around yet. Maybe because, um, no, 82 would still be too early for that. The CNN was really happening around the first Gulf War and that was the beginning of the 90s. So no. So they do something. I thought this was... Kind of like, oh, how they interesting. They could do a guest shot on Love Boat. Yeah, that's... I, I still don't know. I don't know if people were compassionate no. enough to... You don't, and, and, you don't yeah. think that's it? Yeah, no, maybe not. I think the idea they came up with was much better, which is they, they assemble a replica of the truck and the camper together. They put signs on the side of it with the phone number of the police station in Kaloum. Uh, they said they call this the mock van <laughs> and they send it on a road trip through Canada that follows all the places of the sighting. And the idea is that everywhere they go, they get news coverage. It's like a traveling true crime solicitation. You know, it, 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 they set it up in the parking lots of shopping malls. Um, they are able they get interviewed by all the various local news stations and they create this kind of simultaneous news event well what this inevitably does is flood them with sightings and calls not all of which are legitimate but they get one from a guy in an area called windsor which they think is pretty credible because he offers specific details about the truck that weren't publicly known regarding modifications that had been made to it it's particularly the nose he claims right he also says it was two guys which fits with the waitress's statement he says they drove up to his shop he's an auto body guy in the middle of the night um, they tell him they, that it, the truck had a camper attached, but they just took it off. And so they're looking to get a paint job. They offer to pay him in cash. And the guy says then that, um, they say they have this rifle that they'd like him to get rid of. And he says, you know what, man, you know, I, I have some experience with law enforcement. I, I can't be bothered with your gun. I'm, I'm not going to, don't involve me. And here's a part where I don't know, like if my attention flagged or what, the, the auto body shop guy who's given all this information to the cop says they started asking me for stuff that I wasn't willing to give them. So I told them to go to Detroit and I missed what was what were they asking for that he wouldn't give them that they needed to get in Detroit. That's not how I I don't remember it being that way. I thought that they he had just gotten the sense that they were going to Detroit. They were trying to sell something and he thought they could sell it in Detroit. Well, was it the gun? Like maybe I got it wrong about the gun. I guess so because but I think they wanted to sell maybe the truck too. Anyway, he was like not getting involved but he thought Detroit was the place for them to go. Yeah. So Eastham is like I no more want this investigation to go to Detroit than I want it to go to Mars because when an investigation becomes international, I have to involve Interpol. I have to go up the chain of command here in Canada and make all these calls. And so Easton's saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make a direct call to um, Detroit, Michigan, to law enforcement there and try to work with them directly without you know going going through protocol 
as the police hate to say. Right. He's getting ready to do this, and he gets a call saying that a camper truck matching the exact uh, description has been found in the park where all of this started, basically in their backyard, an area called Trophy Mountain. It's discovered there on October 18, 1983. They arrive at the scene. It appears as if whoever it was tried to... There's a canyon, sort of like it's on the slope of a canyon, and whoever dumped this truck wanted it to go into the canyon, but the front wheels of the truck clearly got caught on a log. And Eastham says, if the truck had gone into the canyon, it never would have been found. I mean, that's just how vast the, it's, it's hard to it's comprehend. And remote. This yeah. is like the car. It was again. And the thing that he points out at this point is that the remoteness of the placement of the car. And this confirms it, that this has to be a local crime. Because for somebody to have to know that this place even exists as a spot to dump the truck or that place for the car... It requires really specialized local knowledge. Right. And do you remember what the truck had in it that was also very telling? Is this a is this a quiz? Is it the bullet <laughs> hole? Quiz. I just feel like I'm talking too much. It has a bullet hole in the back. There's a bullet hole in the back of the truck. So And they don't release that information. They don't release that information. That's right. They do, however, begin going door-to-door questioning people in the area. And a detective knocks on the door of a cabin where a man and wife who I don't think... Asshole, uh, an I don't abusive right. asshole, and his long-suffering wife, who I think looked like she could kick his ass. So if he tried to abuse her, I think he was in for a rough go. Well, and I have to say, these are this is the reenactment that we're reacting to. So who knows how this unfolded in real life? But but again, she, well played. He, you know, he, the cop is asking the questions of the two of them, and he's saying to the wife when she tries to answer, he's talking to me. Um, and she says to him, you're not going to tell him about the, the shot up truck that David found. And he's like, no, I'm not going to tell him about the shot up truck. So the detective leaves and then he comes back once asshole has left and he questions the wife about it. And she tells him they have a friend named David Shearing who mentioned to, to them that he saw a shot up truck out in the woods. Kind of a. An interesting thing to mention. Right. Like an interesting sort of uh, like a little anecdote that he had seen the thing with the um, the bullet hole. But the thing that makes it relevant is that they had not released the detail about the bullet hole. That's correct. They only had said that they had found the burned out truck. So the bullet hole and the fact that David is the one who gave them that information is interesting to them because there was no way that anybody else would know about it. So it makes it clear. Plus, they have a name of somebody who they then triangulate his location. I mean, and and it's like it is a scene out of a movie. That's how they shoot it. But yeah, they they go up to a map. They have a red tack drawn through the murder scene, a red tack um, uh, through the uh, dump site for the the uh, initial car, a red site through the truck. And David Shearing's home is in the middle. It's like a a Mercedes-Benz logo. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Only with horrifying murder at its center. Yeah. Um, Right in the center. They also they they do some digging into David Shearing, which didn't doesn't take so much effort because this is a very rural area and everybody knows each other. And the quote is David apparently has a thing for young girls. And he's also alleged to have gotten away with a hit and run a few years ago. And that's one of those things. Where I wanted a little bit more details, but I know there wasn't time in the show. Like, how do you get away with a hit and run? Was he tried? Was he charged? Anyway, um, He's a major suspect. He's a major suspect just by virtue of where he lives, right? I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Christopher and Eric is a production of the TDPS Network, which Mm. you can support by visiting thedinnerpartyshow.com or www.tdps.tv. And by clicking on the gold Amazon box at the bottom right-hand corner of the home page, you'll ensure a portion of your subsequent Amazon purchases supports podcasts like this one. The same is true if you use any of the buy links on our website as well. And thedinnerpartyshow.com and tdps.tv 
is also where you can find all the episodes of our other podcast, The Dinner Party Show, which is full of celebrity interviews and sketch comedy that's gotten us banned in 20 states. That's not true. A man can dream. All right. Well, let's dream of everyone supporting our website. That way we can avoid putting an ad in this spot for a crowdsourced skin surgery hour. So Isam brings David Shearing in for an interrogation. And the strategy here is to get the guy to relax. Uh, he's not asked to see a lawyer. Um He's absolutely terrifying, as we've already said, or at least the reenactor who's playing him is terrifying. Yeah, actually, Pile the of- reenactor was more terrifying than the original guy. When you see the photos of sharing himself, it's like, yeah, he looks sort of like, you know, you wouldn't necessarily want to uh, tangle with him, but he doesn't look as terrifying as the reenactor. I but and I have to say, wasn't that we talked a lot at the top of the show about how uh, how different these high quality reenactments are, but what it also meant is that we saw a lot less archival photographs or we saw some archival news footage, but there were a lot fewer photographs of the real people than you usually see in these specials. Yeah. And we always complain because all those do, if you insist on having reenactments is show the discrepancy between what they look like in real life and, and what you've cast them as in this recreation. And really, so anyway, yeah, it was a very little of that. It was definitely a hallmark of this production anyway. So they bring him in so, and the, our Mountie gets tricky. He gets really tricky. During casual chat, he gets David uh, to admit that he's got a 22 Remington, like the gun that was used right. in the murders, but he's not mentioned the murders. Eastham hasn't said anything about the murders because his strategy is to convince David Shearing that he has been brought in to discuss the hit and run. And during the course of this conversation, David confesses essentially to the hit and run. He says it was an accident. It was a drunk guy walking on the side of the road. No, he was sleeping on the road. Was he sleeping on the road? He said the drunk guy had got passed out or was asleep on the road. And by the time he saw him, it was too late and he hit him. Right. So, um, but he says there's a reason he stayed quiet about the hit and run. Right. And what is the reason Eric Shaw? It's his Achilles heel Little do we know that this big, terrifying man is a mama's boy, despite the fact that he is an itinerant logger and a peripatetic loser. um, He actually is still supporting his mother, who is still alive, and he didn't want her to know that he had hit that boy on the road. So he didn't come forward when the time came and denied it when he was accused. So that becomes his. But it reveals to our tricky Mountie the what the strategy that's going to bring him down absolutely and so in that moment our detective our tricky mounty as you have nicknamed him starts placing photographs of our murder victims on the table between them and says what would your mother think of what you did to and he begins rattling off their names as he as he puts their photographs photograph. yeah, right the bentleys and, and the johnsons responds, and their two little girls right and David's response is uh, he gets considerably nervouser. He tenses up and he says, Nervouser and nervouser. Nervouser and nervouser and nervouser. He tenses up. He said, I didn't have anything to do with those murders. I've never even been to Bear Creek. Dun, dun, dun. The cops have not told anyone that the murder scene was actually the campground at Bear Creek and or he, a campground at Bear Creek. And the trap snaps shut. Mountie gets man. Totally snaps shut. So, and not in that Christian um, Bjorn kind but of But also like I this is one of those instances of like you see this in movies all the time and I always think, "Oh, that's so damn convenient. It never happens that way. They can they can never trick them that easily." And it just goes to show you that 90% of who law enforcement deals with in homicide investigations are not super genius master criminal Hannibal Lecters. I know I make that point all the, on the show all the time, but a lot of these tricks do work on a lot of the predators that they come into contact with. I don't know, maybe, but yeah, it does seem like anybody who decided that, you know, killing somebody, probably not making the best choices to begin with. So when David realizes he's been got by this, that he's fallen into the trap, he says, you're right, I murdered them. And Eastham says, why did you do it? And David says, well, basically, I I wanted their stuff. 
You know, I just, I was walking through the woods and I came across their campfire and I had the 22 Remington as you one does. And I shot them one after the other sniper style because I wanted to steal what they had. And Easton doesn't believe it. He thinks this is not the motive for this crime. You know, why, why gun down? Even wasn't really gunning down isn't really the right term for it. I think gunning down implies some element of chase Massacre and multiple shots. This, this was family. just yeah. boom, one after the other, literally around the campfire. The title of the episode is not just lurid, it's accurate. He says, but, but what Easton knows is that he doesn't need to have a motive that he believes wholeheartedly. He's to got get a confession. Like the guy says yeah. he did it for a boat, the camper and the truck and some tools. And he's not buying yeah. it, but he says he did it. And those are the key words. So he lets it go to trial. 25 years without parole Which is the sentence. Seems light to me. I don't know. Maybe they're less severe in Canada. They're so polite there. So maybe that's the case. I don't know. But to massacre an entire three generations of a family... And only mm-hmm. get 25 years is like, okay, sure. But he went to prison. I had the same reaction. Yeah, he went to prison. He went down for it. So Easton's not going to let the motive thing go, though, because this is, after all, an episode. Because this of the is the kid that still haunt haunts him, right. And he's being haunted. And so he uh, visits Shearing in prison. And finally, and I, I don't know if I entirely trusted the episode's timeline here. I think this probably took a while, maybe, to break Shearing down. I must have. I can't imagine he just came forward with it. So Shearing admits, I wanted the little girls. I killed the family so that I could abuse the little girls before I killed them. And I think they said he kept the girls alive for nine days. Did I hear that yeah. right? Or did I get that wrong? Yeah, nine or ten days Jesus. before. Like, uh, like, he wasn't clear exactly, but he kept them alive for a while and was abusing them, which really makes the crime much worse and almost seems to me to warrant more prosecution because then it adds, you know, the rape and the minors and the oh my and god just, just yeah. hideous and this poor little children you know like anyway and these yeah these I were can't even, young I, girls they were like 11 and something they were they were kids they were it was horrible you witness the murder of your family and then you're subjected to abuse it's just a man is an absolute monster and then shot um, in the head and thrown in the trunk of a car and set on fire like jesus my god so this is where the episode ends. and But I have a question for you, Eric Sharquin, which I flagged earlier right in Right about the episode. casings. Do we believe that if he did keep the girls and abuse the girls, that he never left the campsite with them? Like, that's what I was asking about. Six shell casings were found ultimately. So we believe that the girls were murdered at the campsite or were they murdered somewhere else? That was the detail that popped out at me. Yeah, no, and I think that this fact that they found six shell casings may be that he shot the parents more than once, you know, like, I I don't, like, I don't know, like, that's an odd thing, even if it had been the six of them, to have killed them all with six shots is, you know, unless you're shooting them in the back of the head, that seems kind of lucky shots, and you'd think they'd scatter, I don't know, it's an odd thing, and they they wanted to depict them as being killed around the campfire, but that isn't necessarily true either. They could have all been dead asleep and shot in the head while they were lying there. Like it's right. It, I mean, we don't know, like we don't, we know don't they, really don't know what the circumstances up the details. Yeah, of and those details were not offered to us. And if the yeah. girls, like I was curious about, yeah, did he take them back to his house? Because one of the things they pointed out was that because of where he lived in the Mercedes Benz logo of murder, um, mm-hmm. he he was very he was centrally located to all three of the locations. So and he could walk. Like one of the things they were thinking about it being a local to begin with was the location of the car was so remote. They thought there maybe mm-hmm. there was even a second person to drive them back. But he was actually hiking from location to location, so he could have taken the girls back to his house and. I guess his mo- I can't imagine his mother was living there, so he could have, um, you know, uh, he could have uh, kept them there prisoner and abused them there or 
you know, and kill them elsewhere. Um, but that means because they were all in the same car together, that there was a carload of dead people, or maybe the dead people were all in the camper. I don't know. It's a very odd, the set of circumstances is not clear and they don't really explore it because it's not really germane to the conviction of the guy. They found him and that was the point, but it did seem the logistics of where the bodies were prior to the fire, like were the rotting bodies left in the car for 10 days before he mm-hmm. set it on fire. It, it's all pretty gruesome to consider however you, um, however you hack it. But since they were all burned together at the same time, that we do know. And the, he says the girls were killed later. Then it means he kept the dead bodies for a while too, which is also hideous and hideous. gruesome. Everything about it is hideous, and I, I, I don't. What seems to make twisted sense to me, if I'm thinking in terms of apprehension or the risk of apprehension, is that if he's got a remote campsite, he's not going to risk walking through the woods with two little girls who might be able to get away from him um, in the vastness, right? Like if he's if he's got a campsite with two vehicles where he can confine people, he doesn't have to worry about the dead people. He's out, if it's if the campsite's so remote, he's not at constant fear of discovery. Maybe it makes logical sense, if we can call anything this man did logic, to remain there and commit all the murders there. But the campsite was part of a national park, so I think he would... The one thing I think he would had to have done would be take them out of Bear Lake campsite. Like, either he took them back to his house or he took them to one of the other remote locations. I figure the little girls wound up in the camper and driven back to his house, and then the other people were kept in the car at his house or even at the location where he ultimately burned them and he just added the little girls to it. But that would seem like a long way to drag two dead bodies unless he killed them there. Um, it, 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 it was pretty... It's a good question. I think we should be clear, or expansive in our definition of a national park, though. I, I these were really remote places. I mean, this is not yes, like the entrance to Yellowstone, but, you know. Like, but the, but the, the, um, but the the forest ranger had seen them at Bear Lake Park. That's how they found out where they were camping. So it was right. on the patrol of forest rangers. So I don't think yes, he could have right. stayed there because it was too. The other locations were remote and or private, his own home. So he could have gone there, but he couldn't have stayed at the Bear Lake location because that technically was an official park campsite. So in his confession, he does admit to some movements in terms of taking one vehicle away from the campsite first to its burn site and then taking the camper away second. Yeah, I, and he was going to keep it. I what I'm morbidly curious about is whether those movements happened after the girls were murdered or before the girls were well, murdered. Well, he said you know, he was maybe. going to keep the um, the camper until he saw it on television. So he, the, he didn't burn the ah. camper until after they were all dead and mur- and burned because they, they didn't show up on television until way in the investigation. So the camper he right. kept for a while, if they had gone to his house, they would have seen the camper, I guess, in his driveway or wherever he was keeping it. Okay, so my next question. Why did he mention finding the shot-up camper to his friend, the evil, the, the jackass who was so rude to his wife, the one they uncovered with the door knocking after they found the camper? Was I it thought because that he wanted was- people to find it? Very suspicious. I, you know, or was like, it just? I felt stupid. like I thought that either it was stupid or, um, he was. Um, they had seen him driving it, or um, that horrible man helped him abuse those children. Mm. Yeah, like mm. I, I thought there was. I thought that was really a very suspicious thing for them to have that knowledge. Um, she only knew of it in the broadest way, but he was clearly interested in hushing it up. So it seemed like he had greater guilt around it. So I'm not even convinced that he wasn't fellow because he was now again, this was casting. So it's hard to say who the original, what the original fellow looked like, but he was every bit as horrifying as the guy they brought in to, um, yes, to, right. to interrogate. 
And I'll say this. I'm not always trying to be difficult about reenactments because, as we said, these are of a much higher caliber in terms of production value. Unbelievable. But I am, I am not as trusting of pivotal information about a case being conveyed entirely through reenactments because, as we pointed out, it's entirely possible, based on the facts we're actually presented with, that he didn't shoot them one after the other sniper file around the campfire. That, you know, and that we that looked good on film. So it's what they did. And if there's no narration to contradict it or suggest otherwise, we walk away thinking that's exactly what happened. And, you know, I know these specials have to condense and they and they I think it's the condensation. That's really the thing that they have to do the most that leads to these shortcuts. Like we always sort of pounce on why was this detail left out? And we're always intrigued, I think, by the idea that if you didn't leave it out, it would suggest an avenue that was maybe not explored or. Uh, it's a level to the case that you felt didn't fit the story of this one detective. Like maybe the other guy was an accomplice and that was revealed later. I don't know, but I, the, the other, the additional detail that we didn't really get back to in the story of the, whatchamacallit was the, the national humiliation of tracking that camper all the way across Canada and almost into the United States before they realized that it was actually still in the park where they started searching to begin with. He didn't really go back over that detail, but that was pretty, that was pretty bad. And we needed an explanation of why the auto body guy from Windsor who gave that incredibly detailed report about the two people trying to get away, uh, give away the rifle that matched the Remington he was able to describe the truck in detail, like and and again, two guys. So was it David Shearing and his wife abusing friend out in the woods? You know, like I, but but they I, wouldn't, but they didn't clearly take the thing all the way there, or they would have disposed of it in Saskatoon or Alberta or you know Lake Michigan for God's sake. Like, there's no reason for them to have driven it all the way back to practically Vancouver to dispose yeah. of the van. The van never left that park. But wait, do we know where Windsor, Canada is? Because they say it's, I said it earlier, like, and from Windsor, and I have no fucking idea where Windsor is in Canada. But so. they were tracking them across the country. So yeah, it was I mean, a was long the, way from where they were. Yeah. I, yeah. I would say would, it, if, if Detroit was a reasonable destination, we're talking from the west coast of Canada to at least the center of the, you know, the Toronto region of the country. I don't know where Windsor yes. is. So, you know, our uh, the listeners may have suggestions for us about that. But I my impression was because they were doing the tracking across the, the country that it was a long way. They got as far as Saskatoon, I remember them talking about. But Well, I think one of the things this reminded me of for sure is that Canada is enormous and it is mostly wilderness. It is the Russia like is, of North America. Yeah, it is just unbelievable. Gigantic. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, unpopulated. Unpopulated. Yeah. More people live but, in Los oh, Angeles God, County story. than than in Canada. Uh, yeah, it was really it was a brutal crime. And and when you get that extra detail of what those little girls went through. Lord, happy summer vacation, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Courtesy of TDPS presents Christopher and Eric bring you darkness and all that you do. Right. Um but it was, a, yeah. it was a really interesting approach to the true crime genre to have staged it that elaborately and that well really was mm-hmm. an interesting way to apply. I, I get what you're saying about the being having factual data presented to you in a dramatic fashion is it's its own challenge. But I think honestly, like Dateline, you remember we've seen versions of those Dateline stories. You see a second version of the same murder and there's a whole new cast to it. They get a story they want to tell and they tell that story, which means editing out a lot of the facts of the case because it's pretty compendious when you get right down to it. I, I You know, and there's another aspect to it. I thought it was interesting the father of a murder victim down in Orange County is a pretty high profile case. His son was this very attractive young college student who was uh, murdered by this guy. And it's been an ongoing unresolved mystery to what extent the murderer's girlfriend was also involved in the crime because there was a money motive and they were all college students together. Anyway, the thing that he said is that when these, the mainstream true crime shows like Dateline 2020, 48 hours, when they come to visit your case, as it were, 
you always have a hope as a, as a relative of the victim that they're going to launch their own investigation and turn up new evidence. That's really not what they do. It's what they scripted do, before they show up, right? They scripted and they script it based on the existing body of evidence that they have access to at the time. What they basically are, and this is more power to them. They are a certain form of entertainment and journalism and whatever, but they're not sending out their own Dateline detectives to knock on doors and question people. Right. They are primarily cooperating with law enforcement, using law enforcement sources, and using that to give the lay of the investigative land as it, as it sits on the surface of the case. And so that can change in three years. If the investigation turns up something new, then the store, what they have access to, what they're presented with by their law enforcement sources completely changes. But it's really, they're not instigators and investigators in the way that we may um, and they're on a and they're on they a are. production deadline. Like they're showing yeah. up, they're showing up to shoot the things that are that they've already scripted. They're looking for the opportunity to get a very specific set of uh, visuals to to that they can craft their story with, rather than um, coming to do a cold case investigation of the crime. Absolutely. Well, that's about the time we have here for this episode of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. We want to remind people that if you find Eric Shaw Quinn to be of the unrelenting and insightful uh, quality of the light, to possess these qualities, I should say, excuse me, I've had a little too many Oreos on the snack station here in my recording studio. Um, If you would like the ass-quicking, I'm not going to be able to get through a sentence, apparently. It's just been that kind of day. If you would like the ass-kicking life advice of my co-host, Eric Shaw Quinn... Which seems really unpleasant. I I hope that it's not really like that. I think that's the kind of... People don't want to go... They don't want to half-ass it when they're asking for advice. They want the the real stuff, and and you'll give it to them if they email you at eric at thedinnerpartyshow.com. But I will give it to you live on the air. So advisedly, let us know if you don't want your name used or if you just have a comment or a question or advice that you want to ask, you're welcome to just post it on the website as well the, um, at uh, our Facebook page uh, for the dinner party. And let me show. also let me also add this. Yes, to all that. But let's say if you just have a friend who's making shitty life choices and you want to bitch about them, you can do that anonymously, too. And you want Eric's opinion about <laughs> their like shitty life do. choices? That's totally, that's what we do with a lot of the horrible people we have to talk about on True Crime TV Club. So, you know, weigh in. And uh, anyway, that's our that's our promo for uh, Eric's brilliance and Ask Eric, which is an ongoing feature here at the dinner party. And which we'll more show. or less be addressing next week. Absolutely. So until then, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks and happy holidays. This is TDPS.